0: the genealogy of David. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jess, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jess. And Jess, the father of David.
1: Thank you, Judith. I'll invite John up now. He's going to speak to us on that passage. I'll just pray for you before you begin. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for, for John, for all he brings to uh, this fellowship uh, thank you for what you've uh, prepared, Lord, in his heart to bring us today. We just pray that you'll be open, we'll be open to hear from you through him, that your words will not return void, but it will accomplish that which desire. So, yeah, we just pray your spirit will fill John now as he speaks. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, be with you uh, and uh, preaching again today and um, I don't take it lightly um, as Tony suggested you know that I have a sense of a great responsibility when I come here and uh, open the scripture and someone said to me how are you and um, I said to that person I said I've actually been preaching for 50 years but every time I come up I feel anxious and nervous and Know uncertain about it, so um, you know, I need God's help. We all do, don't we? Can you hear me? Okay, because you right, you can hear me. Kim, can you hear me? Yeah, check my wife can hear me. Everybody, hear me at the back. Great. Okay, now we've had the passage read to us from the book of Ruth, and it also kind of connects with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 which is another genealogy, and we won't read it, but I will refer to it. I thought we were going to give Judith a round of applause for getting all those names right. She did very well, didn't she? So these verses that we have read today conclude the book of Ruth, and they set a kind of a calm, a happy, and a reassuring scene. After all, the turmoil, the sadness and the drama that has preceded. I'm a great lover of sort of action movies and, um, you know, people, terrible things happen to them and they nearly die and vehicles turn over and people are shot at and people shoot people. And then the last couple of scenes are people just all sort of sitting around, reunited with family, reunited with friends. Everything at last is okay after all the drama. And that's the spirit of these last verses that we have read together today. And interestingly, the conclusion on the climax of this book is a genealogy. And maybe our sense is a genealogy, a list of names, it's pretty dull. But let's look more closely at this genealogy and genealogies in general. This genealogy gives a generational setting to the birth of Obed, Boaz uh, Boaz and Ruth's son. A genealogy is more than just a record of who fathered who. It reminds us of God's unfolding plan. A genealogy reminds us of God's unfolding plan. A plan that is realized through people and through the circumstances of their lives. And I want you to hold on to that as we go through. Now that thought is illustrated in the passage that we have read. Because we see God's unfolding plan. Ruth and Boaz are married. Together they have a son named Obed. Naomi is provided for practically and emotionally. What a lovely scene that is of her holding the baby, uh, Obed. And the people of Bethlehem rejoice at their blessings from God. The pivotal point of these events, a point of security and lineage, which as we've read in the book of Ruth, is so important to these people. Security for the future through lineage. The pivotal point is the birth of Obed. And the women of Bethlehem realised that in what they said to Naomi. Verses 14 and 15. May he, Obed, become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons... Has given him birth. Then the genealogies, very briefly, but give evidence of this narrative. For it says in Ruth four twenty one, Boaz the father of Obed. It says in Matthew one verse five, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. When we look at a genealogy, we take a step back and we say, Ah. That's how God did it. That's how God realized his purpose. That's how God achieved what he wanted to do through people and the circumstances of their lives. And I want to suggest to you that this truth is relevant to us. And the relevance is that God has a plan for every one of us that God has a purpose for all of our lives. If you are a Christian, God has a purpose for your life. And you might say to me, I'm not a Christian here today, and I want you to know you are very, very welcome in our service. Does God have a plan for me if I'm not a believer, if I'm not a Christian? I think he does, and I think it's summed up in this verse from 2 Peter 3.9. It says this, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you're not a Christian here today, God's plan for your life, first of all, is that you come and you put your trust for your salvation for eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. But once saved... God doesn't set us aside. He doesn't sort of say, ah, I've got another one in the bag and forget about us. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Two passages from the book of Jeremiah. First of all, Jeremiah's call. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. God says to him this. Listen to this detail. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you, I have a purpose for you. It is to be a prophet to the nations. Then in the letter to the exiles, later on in Jeremiah, Jeremiah records God saying this to his people. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you plans to give you hope and a future and the truth is this christian brother or sister god has a plan god has a purpose god has something that he wants you to be to do somebody he wants you to be and my prayer is this morning that the holy spirit will confirm that to your heart today our god is an intentional god he has plans for each of us as individuals, as families, and as communities. Plans that are intended, as it says in that passage in Jeremiah, in, to bring hope in their unfolding and blessing and purpose in their realisation. And I don't know whether you've thought about this before, but can you believe, and I want you to believe it today, please believe it, be open to the Holy Spirit. That God Almighty, creator of the universe, the God who sustains everything that exists, has an individual plan and purpose for your life. God's main resource in his unfolding plan is people. Often, people who are outsiders and people who have failed. That was only my introduction. And my first point is God works through broken people. And this is God saying to you don't exclude yourself because in some way you regard yourself as an outsider, because in the past you have failed and messed up. Listen to some testimonies from Scripture. First of all, Ruth herself was a foreigner. She was a a Gentile. She was from a land we get in again and again in the book, don't we? From Moab. She was a Moabitess. It was a pagan country. They were worshippers of pagan gods. In fact, part of the ritual of their worship was to sacrifice babies. She was glad she wasn't living there anymore when Obed was born. But that was her past, that was her heritage. That was where she came from. Naomi, you know, was she a wonderful Christian all the time blaming God? You know, and she comes back to her people and she says, You know, I went away full and I've come back empty and it's all God's fault. That was the spirit in which she said it. And she said to them, Call me Mara because I am bitter. And yet, God worked through and in their lives to realise his purpose. Turn to the genealogy, the one in Matthew chapter 1, and it begins with Abraham. Now, was he spotless, squeaky clean? No, he was not. We know that God said to him, you're going to be the father of a great nation. God took him outside and said, look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore. You were going to have as many descendants as that. But he got older and older and older. And it never happened. It did happen, but it hadn't happened at that point. And he said to himself, I need to do something about this. So he slept with his wife's maidservant and fathered Ishmael. That wasn't God's plan. He messed up. And yet, God used him greatly. Also, in that uh, genealogy, we have reference to Judah. Judah fathered Perez with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who seduced him, pretending that she was a prostitute. Question, what was she doing seducing him? Question, what was he doing looking for a prostitute? That's not very godly, is it? So these are people who messed up and got it wrong, but God still used them. Rahab, we know, was a prostitute. She was Boaz's mother, but God used her. King David, also in the genealogy, took Bathsheba, another man's wife, slept with her, and then when she became pregnant, murdered her husband, in the front line of battle. This is the calibre of people. This is the character. This is some of the things that these people in the genealogy have done. And yet God used them. Yet God worked through them to realise and achieve his purposes. Sometimes it's people's background. Sometimes it's things that they have done. Nevertheless, God works through them to realise his purpose. And in fact, when you take a step back, you realise that each one of these people is ultimately a testimony of God's grace and God's love and God's power in their lives. Sometimes, God even uses the product of a person's failure to realise his purpose. Abraham's son, Ishmael, not the child of the promise, for I think 13 years later, Isaac came along, who was the child of the promise, and from whom uh, the Jewish nation uh, descended. But Abraham's son, by the maidservant, Ishmael, not the child of promise, but became the father of the Arab nations. The union between David and Bathsheba produced Solomon, not of the stature of his father, but a great king. God sometimes uses even the very errors and mistakes and faults themselves to realize his purposes. Listen to the scripture on that subject, a familiar verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. This verse is not an encouragement to sin. It's not an encouragement to recklessness. But it says this, that God is able to turn all things, including our failures, into something for our blessing and for his glory. And I believe God wants to speak into the hearts of men and women here today. God wants to says, do not write yourself off. Do not exclude yourself because of your background or because of something you you have done. God can use you. God has a purpose for your life. And I want to get ahead of this voice because you know that one of the titles for Satan in the Bible is the accuser of the brethren. And when God speaks a positive word, about how he's going to use you and about how he's going to use you to fulfill his purpose. Satan steps in, the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, and he says, every other Christian, but not you. Do you know what you've done so bad? God can't use you. Do you know that kind of background that you came from? It's marred you, it's stained you. God can't use you. Brothers and sisters, do not listen the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, not just the accuser of the bride, brethren. you know, listen to God who says I can use you whatever your background, whatever however you have messed up I have a purpose to fulfill in your life second point, you still with me, hottest it? don't fall asleep, okay I'll have a few things to throw if I see people falling asleep. God works through divine and human partnership. Now, I expect you know that we sort of talk about theology and have grand titles for things. But we talk about salvation. That's when we become a Christian. And we talk about sanctification. And that's, in a a way, the process of living the Christian life. Hopefully, day by day, becoming a bit more like Jesus. What I'm about to say falls into the category of sanctification, living the Christian life. The high point of the book of Ruth, I think as we read these verses, is the birth of Obed. Now, excuse me, what precedes it? Verse 13. Then he, Boaz, went into Ruth And the Lord enabled them to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Quote, the Lord enabled her to conceive. God gave them Obed. God gave them a son. It just reminds us, you know, conception is more than a biological process. It is the working out of the will of God. But before that... Stepped together. They had sex. What we see is this human action and divine purpose work together to achieve God's will. Fundamental to the issue of God's providence and fulfilling his purpose are these three things, I believe. First of all, God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. What he wills will happen. Secondly, human choices do not ultimately fault the purposes of God. If God is going to do something, no man or woman in the choices they make can stop God from doing it. And Yet the truth is this. Human action and choices do seem to have an effect on outcomes. How do we, million thousand million dollar question, how do we reconcile free will, our choices, with God's sovereign purpose? Now we've spent lots of time in our life group, haven't we? wrestling with this question. How do we reconcile free will, our actions, with God's sovereign purpose? Could I just share with you something that I have learned? And uh, you can abandon it and forget it, or you might find it very helpful. I found it very helpful. I want to introduce you to a word, which is the word antinomy. It's a scientific word, but it has been used uh, in Christian theology. And there was a guy, I think he's probably dead now, someone will tell me differently if if I'm wrong, and his name was J.I. Packer, and he wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he used that term antinomy, and it means two things that are equally true, and yet they look irreconcilable. Two things that are true, but they look irreconcilable. And I think if you look at the scripture, you will see that there are a number of antinomies. One is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two truths that look irreconcilable, but they're both true. Here's another one. That God is a God of love yet he's also a God of justice and wrath. Both true, but they look irreconcilable. How do we apply that to this subject? Well, both these things are true. They They look irreconcilable. We can't find a resolution. We can't find an answer. We can't give a definitive word as to how they coalesce together or work out, but they're both true. God is sovereign and his will will be realised. That's one. Two, we have free will and we can make choices and decisions that may well affect the outcome. What this is saying is both these things are true and mature Christian living is to live with the unanswered question, to live with the tension to believe them both, to live in the light of them both, to worship God, to praise God, to get on with our Christian lives, believing both is true, but to be satisfied that we don't have all the answers, we can't reconcile the two together, we can't find as it were their meeting place. I want to say to you that (coughs) I think that's mature Christian living. I tell you, as I say, I've been a Kind of an evangelical, or not kind of, but an evangelical. You know, all my Christian life. One of our problems is we want to cross every T, we want to dot every I. We love answers to everything. We love sewing everything up all neatly, don't we? But we can't always do that. And I think what he says here about the antinomy—two things that are equally true, yet look here and so irreconcilable—are a way of looking at this difficult subject. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David is saying, and you know, he was one of the people who messed up pretty badly. David is saying what pleases God is a human spirit or a will that is bent, that is subject to what God wants. That is, someone who before they exercise their free will, that's what we've been talking about, before they exercise their free will or make a choice, says, what will please God? In other words, in the words of Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. I believe God is saying to us, make sure that in the exercise of of Your will, you are not pulling against God. I always think of it as a uh, you know, rope. What's it called? Tug of war. Thank you very much. See you all awake. Think of it as a tug of war. You know, God is on one side of the rope and I'm on the other. If I just selfishly do what I want again and again, I'm going to find I'm tugging against God. But this is saying, hey, Make sure you're on God's side. Make sure you're pulling God's end of the rope. Not my will, but thy will be done. And I want to say to you this, you, may, you be the judge of it, whether it's true. I don't think the saddest people are people who are not Christians. I think the saddest people are people who are Christians but are pulling the rope against who know that as they live their lives, God is going in one direction and they are going in another. And they feel no peace. It's hard to feel loved. They feel no purpose. They feel no security because constantly there is tension between them and God. Those are the saddest people. Maybe that's you here today and you need to just do it. Do it. Drop your end of the rope and get round God's side and pull with him. God works through broken people. God works through divine and human partnership. And thirdly, God works through faithful people. You know, there's a tendency when we look at these genealogies to focus on the superstars, people who in God's plan did great things. And If we look at the one in Matthew chapter 1, we've got Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And uh, we can focus on them and the great things that they did and the way they built uh, the great nation. We can focus on David, the greatest king of Israel, Solomon, the king who built the first temple. But if you look at those genealogies, there are people called, there's a guy called, I guess it's a guy, Abiud, Azor, Mathan. Maybe some of those folk didn't do very well. But some of them did well. Some of them achieved God's purposes, allowed God to work in their life. And they were, they're not great names, they're not down for achieving great things but they were just faithful followers of God. For most of us, we will not be called to do great things, but we will be called to be faithfulness, to be faithful. Jesus talks about faithfulness in these words. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He's talking about loving God with every part that makes us up having a right view of ourselves and loving our neighbour. God uses ordinary people. What does he ask of us? He asks us to be faithful. Doing that, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, your neighbour as yourself. Checking that I am not pulling against God That my will is subject to his will. Checking that when I sin, I quickly ask for forgiveness. Making sure that in every way I am God's helper and partner and no hindrance to him. God uses ordinary people like us, we're a part of his plan, a part of his purpose. He calls us to be faithful that that purpose might be realized. I don't know what you do. I'm retired. I basically do nothing uh, most of the time. I don't know what you do. You know, Monday to Friday, some of us got busy demanding jobs, got families, children, grandchildren. We do this, we do that. That's great. But I want to remind you today that God has appointed you to a calling, to realize you're a part of his plan, to realize that what God is going to do in your life, in your family, in our church, in our nation, he's going to do it through you and me. We say, Lord, what do I need to do? What mountain do I need to climb? And he says, the Lord, I want to just pray that Your Holy Spirit will come and will draw alongside us. Lord, I, I want to pray for the Christian here today, who I don't, I don't, I won't say it to other people, but they're a bit fed up, they're a bit miserable. They keep on the Christian life on the outside, but inside it's all a bit hollow and a bit empty. Lord, I just pray that you'll come to that man, that woman, that young person today and revigorate them, reignite them by your Holy Spirit. Remind them that you have a purpose for their life, that you're going to work through them. You've got something for them to do. And Lord, our past, our messing up doesn't negate your work. What you're calling us to do is not to climb a mountain, not spiritual gymnastics, but it's just to quietly be faithful to you. Lord, I pray for anybody here who knows that you're pulling in one direction in their life, and they're pulling in another direction. Lord, reason says, keep pulling the rope. God says. Let go of the rope and go God's way. Holy Spirit, work in power, we pray. Touch the lives of men and women here today, we ask. Lord, we pray it because we want you to be honoured. We want you to be glorified. We want you to be lifted up. And as you are lifted up, men and women, boys and girls, are blessed.